Well, it may be an obvious statement, but I will make it anyways, uh, that when it comes to two words that we might be somewhat familiar with, uh, disciple and discipline, that they actually come from the same word. And it might be obvious to say, but that a disciple is somebody who typically has disciplines in their lives. And those words are very much connected. A disciple is somebody who follows another. And a disciple is somebody who wants to follow in the footsteps of another to emulate somebody, to think and act and live like somebody else. And so each one of us, we have people that we track with, that we follow in one way or another. And so in some sense, we are a disciple. A discipline is different in the sense that disciplines are practices or trainings that allow you to incorporate behaviors and attitudes into your life in a unique way, in in ways that actually can change you, that get entrenched in your lives, that they start to become second nature. Malcolm Gladwell used to talk about the fact that we need 10,000 hours of a certain discipline in order to actually have it become an expert at it, actually have it change us in a significant way. But disciplines are routines and practices that shape our thinking, shape our behavior, and hopefully start to transform us. Many of you, you uh, might read books, you might follow blogs, you listen to people, you uh, pattern yourselves, maybe it's leadership uh, people that you follow, and you try to emulate them, and so in a sense, you're sort of being a disciple of them. And you might actually follow some of their disciplines, that's why you follow some of their diets that they recommend, or different uh, fitness patterns, or whatever the case may be, but we have different things in our lives that are disciplines that help to change us, and are part of being a disciple in one way or another. Another way to think about it, you might think about it in the imagery of a trellis and a vine. And if you are familiar with this concept, if anybody who is a gardener or grows things, and especially a vine that needs to grow up in an upward direction, that there is both the trellis, the structure that gives uh, the vine something to grow on, and you might think of it this way, that the, the vine is like the disciple, a living, growing, transforming entity. The, dis- the disciplines are like a trellis. The disciplines are like these structures or this trellis that the, the vine, the disciple, can grow on and actually use it for its transformation, use it for its growth and for the ways that it will change. But we also know that typically the trellis is not the point. And in a similar way, the disciplines are not the point. The point is, is the growing disciple. The point is is the growing vine that is connected to the source. And as we are, if we are followers of Jesus, we are connected to the one true vine of Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you today, and my encouragement to each one of us today, is that you would consider to be, you would consider being a disciple of Jesus. Now, you may say, okay, Bruce, that's kind of like offensive. I mean, we're in a church. Like, of course, like, aren't we disciples of Jesus? Well, being in a church building doesn't make you a disciple. Okay? So we're called to embrace the love of God through the grace of God and to be transformed into more and more of His image, embracing His love, choosing to follow Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are the things that indicate by God's grace that you are a disciple. And so we want to talk about disciplines and how they can help us in being a disciple. Even though disciplines, even of themselves, don't necessarily make you a disciple, but they can help you grow. When they're intentional, when they're a conscious plan that will help in our spiritual growth and in our changed hearts. So again, we need to remember that it's not about the trellis. 
It's not about the disciplines. It's about the growth of a disciple. And sometimes, again, we, we get those confused. We're in a series, as you know, called Kingdom Economics, where we're talking about money and how it is that we handle our money. How do we view our money? How do we live as a disciple of Jesus? How do we think about the kingdom of God in regards to money? And so in that vein, I want to ask this question of what are the disciplines in your life, the spiritual disciplines that you have around money? If discipleship and and being a disciple is connected to disciplines, and if money is a big part of this kingdom work of becoming more and more like Jesus, then the question is a fair one of saying, okay, so what are your spiritual disciplines around money? In other words, what are the trellises? What are the patterns? What are the routines? What are the habits? What are the things that you have put into your life to help you grow in this way in order to understand and incorporate kingdom principles around money? And so what are yours? And I want you to think about that. Last week, we talked about this acronym, JGSP, and if you were here, you would understand this. It's fairly straightforward in the sense that in the New Testament, uh, and we were looking specifically at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is teaching the early church as they're trying to understand how to be a disciple of Jesus in this area of money and in this area of giving. And this acronym helps us to understand the new covenant principles of our giving needs to be joyful, it needs to be generous, it needs to be sacrificial, and it needs to be proportional. And so that's what Paul outlines, and especially as we looked at those texts from last week, that here's the guidelines, as as limited as they are, as kind of vague as they are, as broad as they are, but here are the guidelines for how you are to give. And there's all kinds of freedom in that, isn't there? I mean... Paul didn't give them a command of a specific amount or anything. He just trusted that the quantity of their giving would match the quality of the transformation in their hearts. And so he doesn't give a standard for giving. He only gives a standard of giving. The fact that we are called to give. And we give out of response to what God has done. And the grace of God that we've experienced in our lives. And so giving isn't showing God how much we can do for Him. But rather it's a response to how much God has already done for us. And now for some people, they would look at that acronym and they would kind of just think, okay, well, that's all you need. That's, that's enough guidelines. I love the freedom of that. And they would, they would say they're good to go. But for other people, some of you are wired such that you go, no, no, I need actually more specifics. I want something more tangible, more concrete. I need a little bit more structure than just that acronym to help me to know and understand our giving. And you, you think to yourself, you know, wouldn't it be nice if God actually just gave us like even a percentage or something that we were to give? Like something that would be tangible, concrete, and that we could kind of wrap our heads around. Well, you probably know that God did do that. For the people of Israel, as he was forming these people into the people of God in the Old Testament, as we look at that, he established what was called the tithe. And tithe means a tenth. That's, that's what it means. It just means a tenth of whatever you have. And so God established this trellis, if you will, this structure, this pattern, this discipline in the lives of the people of Israel to help them in their giving. And it was very specific. And there was very specific commands around that today. And what I want us to see today is that the tithe, though not required as new covenant people, can still be really helpful. It can help us in our discipleship. It can be helpful as a trellis, as a structure, as something that we can grab onto. But but before we get to that, let's go back and understand where it came from. And I want us to look in the Old Testament. We want to look at 
what it was intended for, and how God established this in terms of the purpose for the people of Israel. And as you look at the Old Testament, you can see many Old Testament texts that talk about the tithe and that that give affirmation about it, that establish the tithe in all kinds of ways. And it was this idea that you would give a tenth of your livestock, a tenth of your produce, a tenth of your grains, a tenth of whatever it is that you produced, and it was this principle of the first fruits and the firstborn. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. We even see it right at the beginning, before the law of Moses. We see it in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. And so we see this pattern right there in Genesis chapter 4 with these sons of Adam and Eve, and it says this, when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. And when it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. So it's interesting. We see it right there at the beginning of creation, before the law of Moses, this principle of the first fruits. But then as you read the law of Moses, as you read his writings in Genesis, and you continue on in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see the same principles that come through in many, many passages. And I could overwhelm you with passages in the Old Testament that talk about the tithe and and the different aspects of it and so on. And then further on, once the temple was built and it was established in Jerusalem, and the people of Israel now had this place of this temple place to worship that was the focal point of their worship, the tithe was to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem. And the tithe was to be brought, and part of what it was used for, it was used to provide for the Levites. And if you think back to all the different tribes of Israel, the Levites were a tribe that were not given any allotment of land. But they were to be provided for and taken care of by this tithe, by what people would bring from their produce and from all that they brought from their land, both animals and plants and so on and so forth. And so the Levites were provided for as those religious leaders at that time, as well as the foreigners, fatherless, and widows. And so this was some of the ways that the tithe was established and some of the purpose. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says it this way, You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and eat it there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. Do this, doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord. And so the tithe in that day was also very practical in nature. In many ways, it was like the first taxation system where people give almost like a tax, but it was sort of like to provide for the needs of society and provide for the needs of this group of people, the people of God. And so God is forming them. But let's look more at the why of the tithe. And I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 13. And we're going we're gonna to park there for a little bit. But again, as we've often talked about, knowing before we look at a text or as we look at a text, we need to understand the context. What's the context that it's formed in? So, interesting enough, before Exodus 13 is Exodus chapter 12. Imagine that. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, what we have is the story of the Passover. And it's this beautiful story where the people of Israel have been in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. And if you remember the story, there was all these different plagues that happened as Moses and Aaron went to the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And there was these different plagues. And the last plague was the sons of Egypt, the the firstborn sons, were killed. And then Pharaoh eventually lets the people go. 
But in Exodus chapter 12, the story is told of how God provided for the people of Israel and said, you must take a young lamb and you must kill this lamb and take the blood of the lamb and take a hyssop branch, dip it in the the blood and wipe it across the doorposts of your homes. And you can see all this beautiful imagery and the connection to the New Testament as it's this, take this, the blood of the lamb and wipe it across your doorpost. And then when the angel of death comes around, the angel will see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, understand that you are the people of God and will pass over your house and your oldest child will not die. So that's what's told in Exodus chapter 12. And it's this amazing story of God's provision as the people leave Egypt, leave slavery, and now are set free. And so now in Exodus 13, God continues to put structures in place, continues to put trellises in place, continues to put patterns in place to form these people of Israel into God's people. And and so he says there, and we're going to read some of it in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 13, verse 1 to 4. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The firstborn offspring to be born, both of humans and animals, belong to me. So Moses said to the people, this is a day to remember forever. The day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. Remember, eat no food containing yeast. On this day in early spring in the month of Abib, you have been set free. So God is establishing that they would bring their sacrifices and that they would remember God's faithfulness. And so the purpose of this was that they would remember that God is sovereign, God is in control, and God is a God who rescues. And he was rescuing them out of slavery. And he was now sending them to the promised land. And so God establishes this tie, this principle of the firstborn and the first fruits, in order to remember what God has done. And then as you keep reading in chapter 8, it says, On the seventh day you must explain to your children, I'm celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival will be a visible sign to you, like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord. With a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. So again, this idea of teaching your children. When you do this, you're doing this for a purpose. Tell your children about God. Give glory to God for what he has done and remind them of that. And then it continues on in verse 14. And in the the future, your children will ask you, what does all this mean? And then you will tell them, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. That is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except that the firstborn sons are always bought back. This ceremony will be like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. It is a reminder that the power of the Lord's mighty hand brought us out of Egypt. So again, We see this setting aside of the firstborn son, of the first fruits, as recognizing that God is in control. It's a reminder to worship God, and it's an opportunity to pass it on to subsequent generations. Don't do these meaningless rituals. In fact, when you do these things, tell your children, tell the people around you, tell your friends, here's why we're doing this. Because God is so faithful. He is a God who rescues us. He is a God who's redeemed us. He is a God who has so much good for us that we can trust Him. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it affirms this as well. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And then if you think about, even if you go back to the story of Joshua, when the people started to enter into the promised land, and, and they took the cities as they entered into the promised land. And I don't know if you remember those stories, but 
the people of Israel went into the promised land and there was all these wars and things and they would plunder these cities and they were allowed to keep the plunder of all of these cities and take over these cities except one. And it was the first city that they took, Jericho. Because the first one belongs to God. And so it's this principle again of the tithe. And so we see that right in Joshua chapter 6. It says, shout, for the Lord has given you this town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. And so we could just keep going, like story after story, Old Testament text after Old Testament text, verses that teach variations of this same principle of the tithe. The firstborn must be sacrificed or redeemed. The first fruits must be offered to the Lord. And so this is the tithe principle. Teaching us that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that everything belongs to Him. And this is an expression of faith and worship. But then what about when we come to the New Testament? The Old Testament law was included the tithe, and the tithe is part of that Old Testament law, the law of Moses for the people of Israel. But as we come to the New Testament, we see a different emphasis. The tithe, as we'll see, was affirmed by Jesus, and we're going to look at the two texts in the New Testament that actually talk about the tithe, where Jesus was questioned about it, and he affirms it, but he says, yeah, yeah, do the tithe, that's great, but don't just stop there, go beyond that. And he says, you need to actually focus on the more important things, and we'll come to those verses in just a minute. But if you look at the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is one that is really helpful for us to understand how do we think about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? What we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. How do we think of these things as New Covenant people? The Old Covenant was there for the people of Israel. It was the law of Moses for the Hebrew people. And now as New Covenant people, there is freedom. There is the fulfillment of everything that was intended in the Old Covenant. So how do we think about that? Well, I'd encourage you in your own reading, if you want to look at Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, that middle section of Hebrews, there's some wonderful texts that help us understand how to think about these things. But let's just touch on a few. And I'll read a few and have some up on the screen for you. Hebrews 6, 8 verse 6 says, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. And I love that language of better promises. In Hebrews 8.10, But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And this idea that the laws of God will not be written on tablets of stone anymore, but now they're written on the hearts of people. And then 8.13 says, When God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Hebrews 10.1, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. And then in verse 9, he cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. And so we need to think about some of these things differently as new covenant people. While the old covenant is not our covenant, it definitely connects to our story. It's an important part of our story, inspired by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It is, the Old Testament in many ways is like the backstory to the Christian faith. It describes the covenant that God established with the people of Israel, and it's the backstory to the greatest story ever told of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and the freedom that we have now through His Holy Spirit. And so there are principles that we can carry forward when they're helpful and that we 
can do as we hold them up to the light of Jesus and as we hold them up to new covenant thinking and new covenant understanding. And we, we read the Old Testament and the Old Covenant through the lens of Jesus and from a New Testament view. And so our standard is not the Old Testament. Our standard is Jesus. And some commentators have said that the Old Testament law is like training wheels for us in living within the gospel of grace and freedom. So what the new covenant of Jesus establishes is that our lives in their entirety, including our giving, including how we handle our money, it all belongs to Jesus. And even though in some ways it's far less complicated, it's also far more demanding. Jesus gives us all kinds of freedom. Paul does as well too, as we saw in the text that we looked at last week and reviewed earlier. But now Jesus calls us to follow him and literally lay down all of our lives for him, including our selfish priorities and our many idols. And he says it all belongs to him again, but it's expressed in different ways. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, don't, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And what's so powerful is we can see that in the tithe as well. See, Jesus is the firstborn Son of God, clean, without sin or blemish. He was offered as a sacrifice for our sins to redeem us and to rescue us. And in many ways, Jesus was the fulfillment of this principle of the firstborn and the first fruits. You could say that Jesus was God's tithe. God gave Jesus first in faith that we would believe. While we were spitting on Him and putting Him on the cross, while we were yet sinners, God gave extravagant life and so that's why we give and as we come to the new testament and as new covenant believers we we give in any form because god gave first and we give out of response to his grace and so this giving of the firstborn and the first fruits is a principle throughout all of scripture even though it takes on different forms and it requires faith well in luke 11 we see one of the places where jesus affirms the tithe But he says, living a life of faith takes it to actually a higher level. And if you know how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you remember that he was pretty harsh on them. He was extremely harsh on them. And the reason that Jesus was so harsh on them is they missed the point. Because you see, the Pharisees were the ones who took these trellises, they took these disciplines, they took these things that that God had put in place to help them to grow, and they made them the whole deal. They made those the focal point. And in their religiosity and in their legalism, they made those the things that you had to always focus on. And they they forgot about the whole condition of the heart, which is what Jesus was concerned about. That's why Jesus rebuked them pretty hard many times, and we'll see that. So in 11 verse 42, he says, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herd gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So there you see Jesus elevating it. Good for you, tithe, way to go. But you can do more than that. Like it's, it's not about the tithe, actually. It's about these bigger things that matter to God. Matthew 23, verse 15. Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you cross land and sea to make, you, to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. Now there's some interesting language. Jesus is rebuking them again because you're making it all about the trellis. You're making it all about the disciplines. 
You're making it all about these patterns. It's not about them. It's about the condition of your heart. And these Pharisees were so good at taking these things that were meant to be helpful uh, guides and helpful structures for discipleship, and they made it all about them. That's why Jesus says these pointed things and these harsh things. And then he goes on in verse 23 and 24, similar language to Luke. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So here we see the two verses in New Testament where the tithe is spoken of. Jesus affirms it, but he says it's so much more than that. Like, yeah, good for you, tithe. Yeah, that's great. But it's not about the tithe. It's about the condition of your heart and about these more important things like justice, mercy, and faith. He says, don't stop there. Be more concerned about the things that concern God's heart. And a bigger question of what does God's love require of you? And so the tithe can be a helpful threshold and a starting point. But we have to ask the question as we come to the New Testament and as we think of new co- as New Covenant people, is the tithe a New Testament principle for New Covenant people? So technically the answer is no. We see that it's not actually, but it can be helpful. Because you see, we all need some kind of discipline, some kind of trellises, some kind of structures in our lives that give us the training wheels, just like the Hebrew people needed, and they can help us to give joyfully, generously, sacrificially, and proportionally. And so even in the new covenant, for some of us, we need those kind of things. We need those kind of guides that help change the soil of our hearts, where God can cause good things to grow out of response to what God has done. So I would say to you, if the discipline of the tithe is helpful to you, in your transformation and your growth, give the tithe. Go for it. Good for you. As long as you're giving joyfully, generously, sacrificially, proportionally. But if you've never given before and that's just like a huge reach and you're going like, wow, I can't imagine doing that. And you go, maybe, maybe God, I'm just going to commit to give 1% or 2% or whatever the case may be. I think God delights in that. And then as God continues to cause you to grow and to change your heart and help you understand more and more of the gospel. God will expand your giving and expand your growth in that area and, and where God could have you giving way beyond even the tenth as you follow in obedience. I know some people who have predetermined what they need to live on. And it's people who make lots of money and some people who don't make lots of money. But they said, okay, this is what we need to live on. And so they predetermine and they don't allow their spending to increase with their income. And they say, this is what we need to live on, and we're going to do all we can to give generously out of what God has provided for us. And I know people who give 50% of their income, 60% of their income, 70% of their income, because they put a ceiling on their lifestyle. And they said, we're going to give. And this is what Jesus is getting to. It's not about the tithe. It's about what is God calling you to give. Now, maybe the tithe can be helpful. You decide in that way. So what are your disciplines around money? What is God inviting you to do? What are the trellises and the structures that will help you grow? And I love again that Exodus 13 story. And that's why for me, I always go back to that story because I think it's just so powerful where the people of God are called to remember. Remember why you do this. And tell it to others. And if you're married and have kids and, and grandkids maybe, then you tell your children. 
And if you're single, then tell your friends, get together and have coffee and share these stories and say, here's what I do and here's why I do it, so that you give glory to God and encourage others and spur one another on in different ways. Because it says, and in the future, your children will ask you, what does all this mean? And then you will tell them. There's something really powerful to that. And I've shared before how Lisa and I, in the last number of years, we've tried to be way more transparent with our kids and share with our kids our finances, our income, our debt, our savings, our giving. We've shared it all with our kids, and we try to talk about it on a somewhat regular basis for the purpose of telling them God's goodness and the blessings that we have. For Lisa and I, we've also chosen to use the tithe as a helpful trellis. So we try to give 10% of whatever we get, whether it's a paycheck, uh, income, a gift. Even if we get a tax return, we tithe on that. We just, it's just been a principle for us where it's a starting point, and then we try to give beyond that. And so for us, it's been a helpful trellis. It's not required, but it's been helpful. So the question for you is, what is helpful in your life? What is it that God wants to do in your life? What, what will help you kind of get beyond some of these legalisms? Because as soon as you tell the story of, of, of tithing, then the next question, of course, is, well, do you tithe on gross or net? And then I say, well, now you're thinking like a Pharisee. It doesn't matter. Pick one. God will delight in that. Like, and so this is the point, that we have to get beyond these legalisms. Jesus was constantly challenging the Pharisees to get beyond the legalisms. It's about the transformation in your heart Find a trellis that helps you grow. Find the patterns that help you grow. Find the disciplines that help you grow in this area. And give joyfully and generously and sacrificially and proportionally. And as you understand the grace of God, God will expand your giving and your ability to do that. And he will be glorified. And we will live as kingdom people. So this is what it means in this area in part. And again, we're just scratching the surface to be disciples of Jesus in a kingdom way. Because it's when the soil of our lives is good, fertile soil, when it's rich soil for growth, so that God can cause things to grow. And then as we also put in place some of these trellises and some of these patterns and some of these disciplines in our lives, God can do remarkable things as we're called to be disciples of Jesus. So Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your faithfulness to us. And even as we stand here before you today, I pray that you would, by the power and the intimacy and the personalness of your Holy Spirit, would you encourage us? Would you show us maybe some next steps that we can take? Lord, help us to know that there is no condemnation in this, that that is only of the devil. And the Pharisees were the types of people who would condemn and put guilt on and have a legalism to it. And God, you're calling us beyond that to freedom. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know your grace and have a bigger picture of the kingdom of God and that we would give joyfully out of that, that we would give generously, sacrificially, and proportionally to whatever you put on our heart. And, God, that your kingdom would grow and that you would be glorified. And so, God, would you continue to transform us and renew us and help us to follow you as a disciple in your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.